What is up, guys? My name is Logan Tremont, and this is the Defying Odds podcast. Today, I have on Carlo Gesner. He is an engineered-turned-artist. He was a wedding photographer for nine years. He was a commercial photographer for the past five years. He's worked with companies like Lenovo Computers, and he is dedicated to hustle, community, and family. But before we get into the podcast, I have good news for both you and for me. And that is that this podcast is officially sponsored. This podcast is sponsored by MacroMerch.com. MacroMerch.com is a simple and easy way to order custom printed t-shirts and products day or night at your convenience. Do you own a business? Do you have an event coming up? Are you involved in an organization or play a sport and need shirts? Look no further. Head over to MacroMerch.com to browse and select your desired apparel, brand, style, and color. Next, upload your logo, pick your sizes and quantities, use code DEFY at checkout for 10% off your order, and free shipping. That's DEFY at checkout for 10% off. And I will say, I've known the owner and the new founder of this company for pretty much my entire life. He's a great friend of mine. I have personally ordered shirts from him and worked with him pretty much over the past five, six, seven years, ever since I got into business. Uh, it's a great company, and I'm, I'm grateful uh, to be working with them. So that is use code DEFY at checkout for 10% off. So Carlo, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time again because this is the second time we're recording this. I actually messed up the audio the first time, um, but it's all right. We have some new content that we want to include. Uh, so let's get right into it. Carlo, I did a little intro. You've been a professional photographer for a while now, so you have a lot of experience in it. How do you get into business for yourself? Just take me back. Um, yeah, so my parents are business owners, uh, which is like really you know pretty inspiring to be around, seeing them being in control of their own lives and destiny and future and stuff like that. Um, growing up as a kid, I mean, I had a standard busboy job when I was 14 years old. Uh, ended up working in the ski industry for a few years in uh, retail sales. Uh, also working for the ski resort in different aspects and things like that but always as an employee. So I was always trying to figure out like, how can I be a business owner and turn what I love into what I do for a living? Um, When I worked at the sports retail store, it was called High Mountain Sports in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. I used to see the owners wake up in the morning, they get on their $5,000 Trek Madone bikes, they go for a three hour bike ride, and that was their morning meeting. And I'd look at it and I was like, okay, number one, these guys are getting these bikes at wholesale. Uh, number two, they're tax deductible. And number three, they're having a good time and getting things done. So to me, when I saw that, I was like, okay, like I got to figure out like what's my thing? You know, what's the opportunity for me to do what I love and get into business? And at that time, <clears throat> I was very much uh, exploring photography. So I had like a Canon Rebel camera, and basically what I would do is, you know, I was like obsessed with the thing, right? It was, when I took it out of the box, like, uh, you know, out of my first hundred shots, maybe like three of them were good. And, but those three photos is what kept me going because it showed me the capability of the camera. And after a few small like freelance gigs, like here and there, shooting live music and things like that, I got offered my first like real gig with like real money. Um, at that time it was $400 to shoot a wedding, which was like, I was like, great. You know, I had like a full-time job, extra 400 bucks wouldn't be that bad. And yeah, they offered me to shoot this wedding. I was absolutely terrified. And, uh, I basically did research for about three months on different bloggers from like DC photography, wedding people and stuff like that. And researched that for about three months and then rented a whole bunch of really top quality gear uh, for both for like, you know, best lenses and backup equipment and stuff like that, because it's a wedding, right? You only mm-hmm. get one shot. So, um, yeah, that was my first time really kind of like tasting it. Right. And they gave me, uh, you know, I, I shot the wedding for 400 bucks, uh, put the photos out there on MySpace uh, way back in the day. Yeah. And yeah, I got that whole first, uh, kind of like realization of the power of social media. Because people started contacting me. I think I was maybe like 24 at the time or something like that. So the first wave of friends were starting to get married. And they basically, uh, you know, kind of started spreading the word. And that's how I realized I had potential to start my own business. Mm-hmm. So that 
made you get into wedding photography that you ended up doing for almost 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, the drop of water in the bucket. Yeah. That's you crazy. Know? Yeah. And the funny thing was my parents were very much against it. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, uh, my parents, they are creative in their own right, but they're not. Um, you know, my mom's a real estate agent. My stepfather was like uh, an appraiser for the state and he was also like a developer and stuff like that. So they didn't understand the creative field. Mm hmm. Um, I remember researching like national averages for what a photographer makes and presenting these reports to my parents and being like, listen, I can make 40 G's out of the box or something like that, you know, and just kind of making them realize that like I wouldn't be like the local town photographer shooting for the newspaper, you know, stuff like that. Because to them, like, you know, money was important, mm -hmm. you know, money was important. And when I was a rebellious teenager, I used to be like, money can't buy happiness. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of that Daniel Tosh bit where he was like, well, if money can't buy happiness, have you ever seen somebody, like, not smile on a jet ski? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but the th big thing for my parents was that, you know, my mom always told me, she's like, you know, money is not necessarily happiness, but it is freedom. You know, it gives you choices. And it's taken me a while, especially from being that rebellious kid, like, separating the emotion from money and mm -hmm. utilizing it more so as a tool, uh, you know, kind of just a resource rather than, I think a lot of folks get wrapped up in the emotional aspect of money and that just fogs your brain and keeps yeah. you from making like logical decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I, uh, over the past few years I've built up savings and since I got that savings, I'm like, now it's just a game. You know, I'm not playing this. I'm not doing business for survival anymore. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, if we lose money for the next six months, it's okay. But it's a game. I'm playing long term, and it's look at it as a different perspective because now it's just like pure fun. Yeah. Everything I'm doing in business. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. So you did wedding photography photography for nine years. What made you get out of that? Where did you go after that? Uh, my daughter was born, so uh, I have this beautiful little girl at home. Uh, she just turned eight, like I think a week and a half ago. And when she was born, I was doing like twenty five, thirty weddings a year. So evenings I was doing consultations, wasn't uncommon for me to leave dinner early so I could run downstairs on a Zoom call or something like that with a client. And there was like an understanding at that point in time. Uh, I'd be traveling a lot on the weekends. My, my wife was a teacher at the time, so she worked Monday through Friday. So uh, we kind of passed the baton back and forth on like family responsibilities mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But it wasn't uncommon for me to show up on like Monday or Tuesday and bring her lunch you know, which all the other teachers loved, Yeah. you know, and, um, you know, just kind of take Monday and Tuesday as my day off. But when my daughter was born, I was looking at my calendar and I was like, man, 25, 30 weddings a year plus travel. Um, you know, my wife was, was smart enough and level-headed enough to take like, I think she took like four or five months off of work when my daughter was first born, Jeez. like beyond the, yeah. the given maternity leave. And between that and looking at my calendar, I was like, okay, I got to make a change. You know, I got to I gotta start segueing things into more of a regular Monday through Friday type of scenario mm -hmm. so that I can be with my family. Yeah. So then you got a job, right? Mm-hmm. You got a job at Fig Magazine. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. What made you decide to get a job, go from working for yourself in weddings to getting a job, and then tell me about the transition back to working for yourself? So it was very interesting because the wedding photography business is very different than the commercial photography business. And that's what I was seeking for that Monday through Friday, nine to five. And uh, I made the initial mistake, uh, which is you know, more of a, a stepping stone of learning, that I basically took my wedding price, um, which I think was like $4,000 a wedding or something like that, and I just divided it by eight. You know, I said, oh, this is my hourly rate, you know, that type mm -hmm. of thing. And I ended up getting these commercial jobs, and they were smaller. Uh, I was undercharging because I wasn't charging for licensing or anything like that. Uh, they were happy to have me because, you know, I was a pretty good photographer. I was delivering what they wanted. Um, and they were getting a great deal <laughs> out of the scenario. So, um, yeah, I mean, basically at that point in time, sorry, I lost track of the question. Um, just your transition into getting a job. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, at that point in time, I was watching the numbers dive. I was watching the numbers dive on the spreadsheet. And it was, I would turn away a wedding with the best of intentions because I wanted to free up that time for my family. Yeah. But I hadn't generated the demand for my commercial photography to fill that. 
And after I ran the numbers, I was like, man, I got to do like three or four commercial jobs to make up for one wedding. So I was caught in this cash 22. In the meantime, just watching the numbers dive, 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 you know, and all that type of stuff. And it finally got to the point where I was like, I need to get a job. I need security, you know. So uh, I think I had two job offers on the table at the time. Um, I had a job offer being a content creator for a smart home company. And then I had a job offer on the table with Fig Magazine, uh, which for anyone that doesn't know, Fig is like one of the most prominent magazines in the Lancaster area. Uh, Beautifully designed book. Uh, We didn't even call it a magazine house. We called it a book because it was like, you know, quality paper, borderline cardstock. The design was really thoughtful and beautiful. And the photography was just like over the top in a good way. Like it was just uh, over the top is not the right term, but it was just very well thought out and very tasteful. So, um, yeah, I guess around that time, like kind of prior to that, uh, the Fig Magazine photographer position opened up in town. They posted it on social media. Uh, My wife sent me the link. And then three hours later, I was in Fig Studios with my resume in hand, (laughs) like handing it over to the front desk person. And, um, yeah, getting that job was awesome. It was very, uh, I think they appreciated kind of like my tenacity because uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone out there has ever applied for a job, then you don't hear back, and then you wait, and then you get disgruntled <laughs> and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, what I actually did is I kind of came up with a plan in my head. I said, okay, I'll, I'll give them a call and check in. Okay, uh, we're not ready to make a decision yet. Okay, I'm going to wait three days. Call back, check in. Yeah, you know, we're still looking at other candidates and things like that, and, you know, we've got a lot of things going on. Great. Wait two days. Check back in. And after two days, they weren't ready to make a decision. I waited one day, and I called right away. And um, I think it was in that example, uh, like in that phone call, they hired me Mm -hmm. uh, because they saw the persistence and the tenacity uh, that was coming through. And, like, I'm a big believer in taking the initiative instead of waiting for things to come to you. And, uh, yeah, like, they they hired me over the phone at that point in time. And that was uh, how I got the gig. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell me about some of the experiences you had working at Fig and how that helped you grow your community, grow the demand for your own commercial business, and then how you left and now you're doing your own thing again. Yeah, it was uh, the Fig experience was absolutely incredible. And most absolutely incredible experiences don't come without struggle, (laughs) you know, and a Mm -hmm. lot of challenges. So I remember, um, you know, one of my first days on the job, uh, you know, we were doing between six and eight shoots a day, sometimes upwards of 10. Uh, it was a lot of shooting. Sometimes there was a concept, sometimes there wasn't, and you had to come up with one on site. Uh, in a given day, I might shoot or, you know, photograph like the mayor of Lancaster and then go down to the press room and photograph like an avocado crab salad and then meet up with like Albright opticians and photograph like, you know, the optician with a dog on the back of a Vespa. You know what I mean? Like it was everywhere yeah it was all over the place and I was coming from weddings so I was really used to photographing people um but I just remember a moment with that avocado (laughs) where I was (laughs) I was photographing it in like flat like shadowed light uh in the back of the press room by Steinman Park and uh I showed the shot to the art director who was Deb Brandt the owner of Fig at the time and she looked at the photo and she said it looks good but I want more drama and I was like drama i don't it's an avocado like how am i supposed to make this dramatic you know what i mean i mean i later figured out that when art directors use the word drama it just means they want more contrast and mood you know mm-hmm. but that was definitely one of the challenges where like i was you know i was i was building the ship as we were flying it yeah you know and stuff like that and just figuring things out on the spot day in and day out uh six to ten photo shoots a day five weeks straight with travel and that first cycle of the magazine it was like it was, I mean, it was intense. It was super intense. And, uh, but, you know, there's no feeling like, you know, getting it sent off to the printer and getting it published and it's done. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, in the world of running, I would consider Fig to be almost like an ultra marathon. You know, like you have to have that mindset where it's kind of like, you know, there is no finish line. There is no finish line. There's only the process. And you have to trust the process, move with it. And, you know, a big thing is, like, keeping track of your cadence and tempo uh, so you don't go too hard and burn yourself out or go too slow and be the, the bottleneck in the whole process and stuff like that. Just finding that, that comfortable cadence and then just 
adding to your toolbox throughout as you're, you know, as I was learning throughout the entire process. Yeah. yeah. So how long were you with Fig, and then what made you decide to leave? Um, yeah, so I was with Fig for four years. Um, I will go ahead and tout that I was the longest resident employed photographer at Fig ever. Yeah. So that was one of my goals. Um, I don't know. I'm a pretty competitive person, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw like the track records of the people before me, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass them. But um, yeah, so I mean, we all know 2020 pandemic happened. Uh, it affected a lot of businesses and things like that, and a lot of people out there. I'm sure they're. I'm not alone in saying that uh, the jobs changed. You know, it was a little bit more ha- all hands on deck, uh, that type of thing. Um, so there's a little bit of adjustment in my job description, uh, as far as like, you know, I wasn't just shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times I would have shoots kind of delivered to me and they'd be like, are you available at this time? Uh, this is the shoot concept go. And, uh, I started kind of like producing, I started producing shoots. I started doing everything from like, uh, discovery meetings with clients, putting the shoot together for them, putting together the contracts. And, um, you know, closing, closing the shoot, shooting the shoot and delivering. So I was taking it, taking care of it from cradle to the grave. Yeah. Um, that was one aspect of it. Like my job description had definitely changed from one point to the next. Uh, the other aspect of it was my daughter was getting older. You know, she was like six, seven years old at the time. And my wife was working in Camp Hill, which is about an hour from here. So, you know, kids get sick. You know, and I was the closest one and I had to be the parent and the dad and put family first and pick her up from school in the middle of the day if that kind of instance happened. The thing with Fig is that we were like a very high output production studio, you know. So it was one of those things that like I felt bad because if that happened, then I would impact the flow of production. And we were working on tight deadlines with a lot of output, you know, so it could definitely throw the whole team off. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I basically made the decision. I mean, it was a difficult decision, uh, but it was only difficult because I sat on it, you know. Uh, but it ultimately an easy decision to just put family first and, mm-hmm. and go out and uh, go out on my own so I could have that flexibility for my family. So since you went out on your own, how's business been? Business has been crazy. Yeah. Uh, cr- not crazy is just kind of like, you know, money's pouring out my ears or anything like that, but it's just been, it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Um, I think when I first started out, I did some photography for Blackworth Live Fire Grill uh, up in Lidditz. Uh Those are some of my favorite food shots I've ever done. Um, what else? I got, uh, got a job with Lenovo. Uh, that was totally out of left field. And um, totally an honor to have that opportunity to shoot for them. And those photos, I mean, they're going to serve me for a long time yeah. as far as my portfolio. And then also at the same time, like I get to put Lenovo and we worked in partnership partnership with Microsoft Teams, Zoom and Google. So I get to put those logos on my website of people that I've worked with. So mm-hmm. that's like a big booster. Um, that website's still in development. Don't Google it. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, yeah, I mean, moving more towards now, it's so funny. So I'm like FAA 107 drone licensed. Yeah. And I always thought that that was kind of like a, uh, oh, this is like an additional service that I offer, you know, that type of thing. But I did a LinkedIn post after I did some uh, interior drone work for a plastics manufacturing facility in York, put that up on LinkedIn, and this contact from, uh, or this company from New York contacted me, and they reface buildings, uh, like skyscrapers and high-rises and all that type of stuff, all the way from New York City to, like, Hawaii. So they reached out to me. I've got that proposal out on the table right now, and it's just like... I couldn't have dreamed of having that opportunity yeah. um, as an employee, you know. Um, and that's the thing. At the end of the day, it's like, you know, those big budget jobs are awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're, it's just nice to have that security and have that client list and your go-to clients and stuff like that. Uh, but the other beautiful thing about that is that, you know, the higher your, like, you know, I don't know how to word it, but, like, you know, the higher your revenue versus the time that you're putting into it, that means that you free up your time to do what you want. Yeah. Hang out with your family, go on ski trips, all that type of stuff. I had an old friend that told me uh, when I was back in the, in the wedding days, uh, he was like a leader in workshops and stuff like that. And he said, if I'm on the beach and I'm playing volleyball and my bills are paid and money's flowing into my account and I'm getting savings and, you know, preparing for my future, but I'm playing volleyball, 
then I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Like I know that I'm doing the right thing. So yeah. Yeah. So this podcast is called Defying Odds, right? Mm-hmm. So I love talking about all this, all of the success that each of my guests has, but I also like touching on some of the adversity and some of the odds and some of the challenges that come with it. And you called me this morning and you said you want to talk about some stuff on here. Um, so tell me about some of the challenges that you faced through throughout this long career. Yeah, so um, one thing that I don't really tout, I mean, every now and again, I'll kind of throw it out there, but um, like I have an industrial engineering degree from Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was a very expensive lesson, very expensive lesson, very expensive piece of paper. But, you know, growing up in a small town in Western Maryland, like being a professional creative wasn't, uh, you didn't see a lot of them in the community. There's one guy, Mark Stutzman, that designed the Elvis stamp that was from our hometown. And he was always kind of like the, you know, as a young creative, it was like, oh my gosh, it's possible. This guy's like living proof, you know? Mm -hmm. Then again, he's one guy out of like 30,000 people. So what are the odds? Yeah. You know, all that type of stuff. So I ended up going to Virginia Tech and pursuing engineering. Didn't love it. Didn't have a great GPA. Uh, graduated in the bottom 10% of my class uh, after five years. I realized probably two or three years into it that I didn't want to do it. But I was already in. And my stepfather and I had a conversation where he said, listen, he said, just get the degree and then you can do whatever you want. And we kind of shook on it. Um, so being kind of the rebellious creative that I was, uh, I joined a prog metal band uh, in my senior year. And we did pretty well. And uh, when they asked me at the dinner table, hey, what are you doing after you graduate? I said, I'm moving to Raleigh, North Carolina with my band. And it was just silence. You know, just like deafening silence. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I said, you know, you, we agreed that if I get my degree, I can do anything that I want. And that kind of led to several years of quietness between me and my parents. Um, being that they're business people, they saw college as an investment. Yeah. And I think in their minds, they saw they're losing on their investment, and they were concerned about me. Um, but I realized quickly that engineering wasn't my passion. You know, I worked a couple jobs. I actually worked for Lenovo uh, as an intern in North Carolina. And I was just like, I'm tired of wearing khaki pants and talking about American Idol. Like, it's just not my culture. It's just not my people, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, that type of thing. Just hang around the water cooler and just talk about, you know, primetime television. It's not my thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically struggled with the band for a bit in North Carolina. And then, um, yeah, my mental health started taking a dip because I had all these years of not, f- I mean, I would consider it failure because it was lack of action. Mm-hmm. You know, I sat on all these potential decisions and wasn't, I was listening to myself, but I wasn't doing anything about it. So going from graduating from like bottom 10% of my class to, you know, pursuing this band in North Carolina, but working at Whole Foods, you know, people would be like, oh, where'd you go to school? Virginia Tech. What'd you get? Engineering. Why are you stocking groceries at Whole Foods? Yeah. So that was kind of like my world, right? Um, And then also at the same time, I was very, I was a singer in the band. And I was very much idolizing a lot of unstable, creative figures. Yeah. Um, you know, I really love Tom York from Radiohead. But in footage of Tom York and Radiohead, like, he's, he seems kind of, like, on the edge, right? Yeah. Um, very hard to converse with and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, I got to be like them. I got to be like them. So I think between the I, – I, I don't want to call college a failure, but between – that like lack of uh, you know pursuing my potential mm-hmm. in college, and then also the environment that I was in as being kind of like I was almost put in an environment where people looked at me as like what's wrong with you? Why didn't you do this? You went to a D one school. What you know? And that was coming from all angles, mm-hmm. and it really put me in a bad place in mental health uh, to the point that I wasn't sleeping that much and I wasn't eating that much. And I would go three, four days at a time on two, three hours of sleep a night. Um, and, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I mean, if you ever have gotten to the point where you sleep one to two hours a night for four nights straight, like, you're going to be loopy. You know, you're going to be off. Yeah. And I really had, like, a couple moments where, like, people at work were like, are you okay? You know, because I was just like, whew, just running on adrenaline and stuff like that. 
And then I started experiencing paranoia, you know, and I started experiencing kind of this detachment from reality. And yeah, it was really scary. It was really, really scary. And then, yeah, my parents kind of jumped in and got me diagnosed. And that was tough. That was really tough. So I kind of felt like it was kind of like, at that point in time, I felt like it was like the nail in the coffin. You know, I felt like it was, okay, this is where I've ended up. And, um, yeah, it's, it was, I was like that for a few years, just like really struggling with that, really kind of struggling with that, like label, that stamp. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I had a lot of friends that I lost like during that period of time. Um, but also at the same time, I was also like, I kind of don't blame them because I was, can, can we curse on the podcast? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of an asshole at that time because I was negative. I had nothing to show for. And I was just like in ego, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Just be like, I'm in a band, you know, look at me, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but yeah, I kind of went through that period of time. Uh, moved back to Maryland where my parents lived with kind of like my, my tail tucked between my legs because the band didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And um, what did I do then? I ended up really heading out into the party scene uh, just because I think I'd been in relationships, like long-term relationships for the longest time. It was the first time I was single. And that didn't pan out great. You know, it was just kind of like, you know, you're having a good time in the short term, but you're not building a future. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I kind of took a look at myself and I was like, um, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't have a camera yet and all that type of stuff. Well, I, was, I actually just had my camera, but I didn't know what I was, you know, what I was going to pursue with it. Still kind of experimenting. Um, but around that time, I kind of had, I had this conversation with God because, which is funny because I wasn't necessarily like a spiritual person. Like I wasn't a practicing Christian or anything like that. But I just kind of had one of those moments where I, I had a conversation with God, and I just kind of said, like, you know, can we – And said, I, I just said, you know, I really want to meet someone of value uh, in my life to bring home to my parents. And that's about the time that uh, I ran into my wife. So that had to have been tough, a tough few years of just going through that. And I think – just hearing you say like you knew you wanted to change but not taking action even makes it harder for somebody because I feel like a lot of people can easily go down a rabbit hole where they're making poor decisions but they don't realize it they're not self-aware about it so the fact that you were aware and you know still going through it couldn't have been easy Um, so then you said you just met your wife how did that change your direction how did that help what are the things some of the things that you did to overcome you know that past yeah that was really cool because it was like you know i had that conversation with god um and then two weeks later i ran into my wife at like a local night spot in deep creek and um yeah i don't know what the listeners viewpoints are on faith and stuff like that you know i kind of word god as like it can be God, it can be the universe, it can be Mother mm-hmm. Nature. It's whatever is greater than us all. Yeah. You know, whatever you believe in is totally cool. Uh, I just call it God out of convenience, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, two weeks later, I ran into her, like, after I had that conversation. And uh, saw her at the bar. I We actually, I remembered her because we used to work at a restaurant together when I was 14. Uh, she was a senior. I was a freshman. Uh, she was way too cool and beautiful and older than me for me to talk to when I was 14 years old. <laughs> you know, I'm like this 120-pound busboy, like, you know, <laughs> running around the restaurant yeah. and stuff like that. But I saw her and I remembered her. And then I went over and I took a shot of Jack. And I was like, I'm going to go talk to her. So I talked to her. We slow danced. We kind of joked around, did that, like, eighth grade middle school dance thing. Yeah. Kind of got the laughs going. And then I told her, I said, uh, yeah, I used to crush on you hard when I was like 14 years old. And she was like, you know, she, she was like taken aback. That was like a big risk for me to just kind of confide that in her. Mm-hmm. But we ended up exchanging email addresses. Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> email. Email addresses, <laughs> yeah. which I punched into my, uh, my Palm Pilot <laughs> with my stylus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we stayed in touch ever since. And she was living in Lancaster. I was living in Western Maryland, a place called Deep Creek Lake. And from that moment, I think we saw each other almost every single weekend 
uh, over the course of a year, just like traveling back and forth and seeing each other. But the big thing with her was that like we laid it all out, you know, like I told her about all my struggles. I told her about what could be perceived as baggage, you know, and I was just 100 percent authentic and just like myself and just took those risks and was just completely vulnerable to her. And she was the same with me. Mm-hmm. You know, she had her own stuff going on and we just accepted each other and just realized that like it felt good. So that was like, that was the big thing for me. That was the big kind of like, okay, like this is real. This is not just like a fling or something like that. Like there is, um, at that point in time when I felt like the world was rejecting me, she was like the one individual that was accepting me. Yeah. One thing that I want to touch on with that is something that Gary V says all the time. And I think it's the most practical thing that anybody can do if they're dealing with like, just hard times. Mm-hmm. It's um, He always says, you don't need to do both of these, but cut out one negative person, add one positive person to your life. And even if you just cut out one negative person, or even if you just add one positive person, mm-hmm. that's going to have a huge impact on just the quality of your life on a consistent basis. 100%. And I think that's just, I have never spoke on mental illness or anything like that because it's not something that I feel like I've had enough experience with. But I feel like that, is a very practical way of doing something that could help. Yeah. It's, you know, they talk about that with people that are dealing with addiction and stuff like that. It's like, you got to recultivate your circle of people that you're hanging out with. Yeah. Cause you are like, you know, you're, you're a lot like the, the top five people that you hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, the cool thing about that is that can change and rotate, you know, like, I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like we, it, it's so funny because like my wife, a lot of my good friends that I have, the people in my circle are like people that I've met on social media. Mm-hmm. And back in the early days, my wife was like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you met this person on Facebook and you guys are going to go get coffee. That's so weird. You know, kind of like the way online dating used to be perceived. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but no, that's the thing is that like, uh, you know, steel or iron sharpens iron. You know, if you can be around people that inspire you, um, that push you, that can give you straight feedback, you know, that's my best friends when I'm screwing up, they sit me down and they're like, you're screwing up. You're making bad decisions right now. Yeah. Why are you out at one o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night while your family's <laughs> sleeping? Yeah. That was years ago. I remember <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, one same friend that, that gave me the quote about uh, playing volleyball. He told me, he said, yeah, if you want to fly with the Eagles, you can't hang with the Crows, you know, which is tough. Yeah. Because you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like, you just got to focus on what drives you and then surround yourself with people that dr- are driven in the same way or driven in the same, you know, hobbies or interests or passions that you're driven in. No, that it's all cumulative, you know, it all adds up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's great. That's a great spot to end that part of this conversation. I want to go back into the photography and the media part of your career and ask your opinion on a few things. So for businesses listening, business owners, people interested in media, what is the importance of photography and creating digital media for their company in building a brand and growing their business? Oh, yeah. I mean, we live in a digital media world. Yeah. You know, like the phone is the television, the TV is the radio. And, you know, you just... Every Sunday when you look at your phone, you see, like, how many hours you've been on your phone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, that's everybody. Yeah. That's everybody's other phone, you know. So, um, and the thing about that is it's created, like, a constant hunger uh, for content. And I honestly think that a lot of marketing departments can't keep up with it, you know. Um, even if you're doing a post a day or ideally three posts a day or something like that, you yeah. know. It's, uh, you're going to look at your marketing library and be like, what have I not used? How can I put a different angle or insight or spin on this particular image or stuff like that? So you got to keep it fresh. You got to keep it fresh. There's a lot of people out there that are doing a good job with like cell phones and and things like that. I mean, consistency is key. Uh, But if you are, you know, a premier brand or there's a certain demographic that you're trying to appeal to, then, you know, phone photos and videos like 99% of the time aren't going to cut it. Yeah. You know, um, from a branding perspective, I think it's very important that the image that you convey on your website, in your company culture, uh, and just your, your general overall aesthetic needs to be matched with your social media. 
you know, um, there's you know old old photography guy that I got advice from one time, and he said you got to have a round game, you know, um, you know if it's uh, if you're showing up to a meeting and you want someone to write you a ten thousand dollar check, you got to look like the guy that's ready to receive a ten thousand dollar check. Yeah, you know that type of thing because it's all about trust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean from from uh, from a digital media perspective, as far as photo and video, I think like now it's it's pretty darn crucial. Uh, because essentially what it does is it, it creates engagement. So aesthetic equals engagement and then engagement leads to leads, uh, people actually hitting the contact button and getting in touch with you. And the more engagement that you have, like that's a physical quantifiable representation of your sales funnel. You know, these are all prospects. Uh, think about a convention and you're at the Javits center or something like that. And there's 10,000 people in the room. You know, these are all your potential prospects and you being there in that swimming pool is your it's like that's like your presence mm-hmm. in like a social media platform. Uh, and then there's engagement. Who's actually going to walk up to your booth? Who are you going to reach out to and start a conversation with? You know, that's, you know, runs in parallel with like your social media presence. And of course, you want to have a nice booth, right? You want to have a nice, beautiful, engaging booth with all beautiful branding, interactive activities, all that type of stuff. I think that's what photo and video is in the digital world. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's your, that's your home base uh, as far as being on the internet uh, and creating that engagement. Because, you know, people aren't on your website and commenting on like, hey, I think this paragraph's really good. You know, stuff like that. So uh, as far as, you know, when it comes to digital media and things like that, I think it's very important to A, determine the aesthetic that you want to put out there and then B, come up with a strategy and how to fulfill that. You can either do it in-house or there's, you know, obviously visual professionals like you and myself mm-hmm. uh, that can obviously fill that gap uh, and just, you know, continue to feed that, um, that marketing library that people are so hungry for because they want that content. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe that every company should look at their business as being a media first business, regardless of what business they're in. I feel like they should approach it as they should be producing media first because like we, we both know that media producing content online is honestly one of the biggest factors when it comes to building a online brand and building the business as a whole over the long term. What's your take on that? Hmm. I don't know if I'd hit that. I'd say that the same way. Yeah. I think it's a major component. You know, I mean, you got to have like a solid product first, whether it's a product or a service. Yeah. You got to have proof of concept and have that nailed down. Um, but beyond that, I mean, there's so many different factors with like running a company. You got, you know, employee management, company culture, marketing. But I guess externally facing and stuff like that, it's basically, yeah, I mean, you got to have a solid marketing uh, plan. Um, it's so funny. I think it's so funny that like, people demonize Zuckerberg as this kind of like evil genius, like sitting in Silicon Valley, just mm-hmm. being like, you know, in that movie, the social network didn't help at all. No. Um, <laughs> he gave us one of the greatest gifts in our generation and probably all of, you know, in, in technological history, like he gave us one of the greatest gifts and that is for people to be able to connect with each other. Uh, on a massive scale. Yeah. You know, the fact that I can talk to my grandmother in the Philippines on Facebook Messenger, if you would have said that like 20 years ago, like, you know, our brains would have exploded. Yeah. You know, it's done wonders for my relationships with family that live overseas. Um, Not only that, but as artists and creatives, you're getting seen. Mm -hmm. You take a picture, you transfer it to your phone, you upload it to Facebook, and it's seen. Where like, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you had to put it on commission at the at the wall of a coffee shop and cross your fingers and hope that somebody bought it. Yeah. You know? And um, just that massive amount of connectivity, uh, visibility, and things like that. I don't... I think people should really take a step back and, like, not take that for granted. Yeah, I feel like that plays into a bigger dialogue in just the country, at least, where, like, most people just focus on the bad and everything. Mm-hmm. And even Facebook, like everybody looks at it like they're tracking me and doing all this stuff. I'm like, yes, it's a business. They need to find a way to make money. But there's also an insane amount of amazing things that came from that business. Oh, yeah. You know, so people just always, regardless of if it's Facebook or pretty much any other business out there, people will always tear apart the bad, but there always is a good. Right. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Rogan always talks about it's kind of like our operating system, right? It's like yeah. how we're programmed. Mm-hmm. Like we have this primitive operating system that's meant to focus on the negative, identify danger, have all these survival aspects and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, I used to have this saying about like, um, you know, more people will stop and slow down on the highway to look at a car crash than they will <laughs> to walk out into a field and look at a beautiful flower. Yeah. You know, that's just human nature. Um. But yeah, I think there's ways around that too. Like just having that realization, wait a second, this is our operating system. Mm -hmm. That's how most people operate. Uh, Just having that realization kind of takes you out of your own head and you can kind of observe the thoughts that your brain is producing. Yeah. Because it's an organ. Its job is to produce thoughts. Your job is to monitor those thoughts and (laughs) decide which ones are valid and which ones aren't. Yeah. You know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Tony Robbins, one of his quotes is, um, your brain is not designed to make you happy designed mm-hmm. to keep you alive mm-hmm. and he also teaches just random um like practical psychology tips on how you can change that how you can start focusing on the positive and being grateful over uh angry at things and he dives into so many different just practical ways to help fix that uh, i think i bring him and gary up in every single podcast yeah <laughs> um so i think i'm gonna scrap a few of these questions because we covered them um why do you put so much effort into building communities? Okay. You're a part of the Candy Factory, which is one of the first co-working spaces ever. It's based in Lancaster City. I worked out of there for a year. You've been there for a while now. You build, um, what's up? you have the Mid-Atlantic Media Creators. You have an online Facebook group with snowboarding, snowboarders and skiers. That's how we met, uh, was online. And then we went snowboarding together. And now we're here making this podcast. So why do you put so much time into building community? Um, I'm a really extroverted individual. I'm a really extroverted individual. And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. Like going back to like a singular isolated individual going into like building community. Uh, I think there's something, you know, somewhat poetic about that, Mm -hmm. but it's, uh, you know, when I first started out being a wedding photographer, I was all about the hustle and I'm going to outperform this person and all that type of stuff. I remember doing a Facebook post one time at like three o'clock in the morning. I was like, while you're sleeping, I'm up late at night working on my business <laughs> and like, you know, kind of throwing these like, I'm going to get you, yeah. you know, like type of messages out to the world. Um, that post got zero likes, yeah. <laughs> but it was, uh, so I think one of the big shifts is going from competitive to community mindset. Um, it's so funny with like networking. I used to have such a struggle with the word networking because it felt like fake to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, but as I've, you know, kind of gotten older and kind of progressed through my career, it's more so about like building a network of people that you like and respect and get along with that you want to feed, you know? Um, if someone comes to me for like video work, like 99% of the time I'll, I'll refer it out. And the people that I refer it out to, like I'm close with. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about networking is like I love networking with people that I would hang out with if I weren't networking. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, there's that old adage about like, oh, most business happens on the golf course and stuff like that. And meanwhile, you and I are hanging out on a chairlift. <laughs> yeah. You know, why can't it be that? Yeah. Why can't it be that? You know, so it's um, yeah. I mean, as far as building community and things like that, it's just basically uh, it's, you know, Tony Robbins says it that like giving is part of happiness, mm-hmm. you know, and if you can upgrade somebody or reach out to somebody or identify someone that was just like you 10 years ago that has the hunger, that has the drive, but doesn't have the experience and the wisdom that you have, why not bring them in? Why not bring them in? Um, I have a really good friend, Louis Raul, who reached out to me. We shot like uh, you know a couple of weddings together and some commercial gigs and stuff like that. And um, he's one of the most giving people that I know. Uh, he also used to be a contractor, so I give him photography information. And out of his own goodness of his heart, I didn't even ask him for it. He's like, "Hey, can I do some like help you out with some projects around the house in exchange for this information?" Yes, that's what I'm looking <laughs> for. I'm looking for people that have that understanding of, you know, giving and receiving and giving and receiving and that ebb and flow and understanding the two-way street. Yeah. You know, because that's what makes a strong network. That what makes a strong group of people that can feed each other, stay on top of new technologies. You know, AI is going crazy right now and mm-hmm. all that type of stuff. And just, uh, you know, as a group, we're far more stronger and 
not powerful. Powerful. Why not? We're we're, we're just stronger and more. Uh, we can grow faster together. Yeah. Yeah. So how has going all in on your passion, working for yourself, expanded the quality of your life? Expanded the quality of my life. Well, I went snowboarding with you the other day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on a Friday. <laughs> on a Friday. Uh, no, it's just, you know, it's choose your own adventure. That's the best part of it is just choosing your own adventure. Um, you know, it's, it's sky's the limit. Uh, every single day you're, you're waking up and um, I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm like planning, you know, and a uh, big believer in moving an inch forward in all directions and all aspects of life every single day. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I also like the fact that I can make my own decisions quickly and implement them. You know, that's something that's tough to do as an employee. Mm -hmm. You might have a realization that like, Hey, I'm identifying something that, you know, might need help in our company culture. And then you got a scheduled meeting with the boss and then they're making sure they're in a good mood that day and receptive to your idea and like all that type of stuff. And then you pitch it and then it may or may not go through and then, Emails are coming in. It gets lost in the mix. You know, me personally, it's like, I don't know. I was at my daughter's gymnastics last night, and I got a, a lead uh, over text message. Uh, someone introduced me to somebody, and I'm just like, what are you doing tomorrow at 3.30? Great. Let's FaceTime. Awesome. Done. You know, it's just that much more efficient. Uh, and then also at the same time, it's, um, you know, way more control over my family life mm -hmm. is super important to me because... You know, sometimes if you're working a nine to five and you're you're in in the rigmarole of the daily and stuff like that, you're committed to nine to five, unless you're in a really exceptional work culture workplace. You know, um, but yeah, being able to I take my daughter to gymnastics in Hershey two out of three days of the week uh, or two out of three practices of the week. Um, you know, I can pick her up and we can go night skiing if we want, uh, depending on if she's tired or not. But, um, <laughs> And yeah, and then also at the same time, like, you know, my wife recently started her own business uh, working in the daycare early learning center field. So I can help her with that. Mm -hmm. You know, you ever like, have you ever been employed before? Yeah. You have? Mm -hmm. Did you have a side hustle while you were employed? I think part of it. Yeah. Not my first few jobs because I, I got my first job at like 13. You know that um, you know that feeling when you're entertaining a side hustle email while you're on someone else's clock. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst, right? It's <laughs> yeah. the worst. Like you, you just you feel like a criminal. Um, so being able to, yeah, just have freedom over my own schedule and like not having anyone like overseeing me except for me. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, also having like my friends and family kind of hold me accountable for anything that I promise or that I commit to that I'm actually doing it. Like I love that stuff. Yeah, you know? so. To bring this full circle and to wrap it up, you mentioned when I sent you the questions over, you're like, I need to talk about hustle and family. Yeah. So what do you have to say about that to wrap this up? I am saying right now there is a lot of messaging that's happening on the internet about hustle culture. And it's not 100%. I mean, it's great. It's awesome. I love the motivation behind it. I mm -hmm. love a lot of the strategies and aspects that they throw out there. That's totally awesome. Uh, but at the end of the day, whether it be your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your grandparents, your children, uh, all that type of stuff, do not take family lightly. Um, you know, most, I say the vast majority of situations, they are there to support you and cheer you on. They may not understand exactly what you're doing, what you're going through, or the ambitions that you're looking for. Uh, but at the end of the day, don't cut out family to pursue your hustle. If anything, they're an asset and they're a strength to you. And at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, hustle your butt off. Uh, if you want to disappear for three months and work, for, work on yourself, run it by your family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make sure they support you in that. Yeah. Um, but don't sacrifice your family, uh, you know, at the, not that at the expense, but don't sacrifice your family in trade of a career because you'll end up with a career without family. And there's, that sounds very sad. Mm -hmm. It just seems like it'd be a very sad situation. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are super successful, have the biggest bank accounts, do what they love. But at the end of the day, they don't have a family to come home to, you know? And I think it's very important to, uh, you know, just to integrate, integrate uh, work and family. 
And, you know, the best thing to do about that is just communicate. Communicate as much as you can so you're on the same page. So, Carlo, thank you so much for coming on. I think you want to give away a book, right? Do you want to do that now? I want to give away a book. Um, There is this fantastic book called Fast Track Photographer uh, that changed my world. It's by an author and photographer named Dane Sanders. And basically, it just made me realize that all the limitations that I had perceived, I was putting on myself, and sky's the limit. We've got the internet. We've got computer in our pocket that makes phone calls that can answer pretty much any question that we want yeah so uh it's just one of those books that makes you realize that like sky's the limit and it really kind of twists the uh you know turns the key on that awesome so um thank you so much for coming on yeah thank you for having me this is great. <laughs> so where, if people want to find you follow you on social where can they find you um primarily because my website's in development you can go to my instagram which is just at carlo with a k k-a-r-l-o dot photo uh you can see kind of like everything that's going on in my world right there uh you can also find me on linkedin carlo gesner k-a-r-l-o uh and then yeah you know find me on facebook i don't care it's good (laughs) and then um we also have uh mid-atlantic media creators so if you are a creative in the visual field, whether that be photo, video, graphic design, uh, even illustration, animation, and things like that, we've got a little group on Facebook. Uh, it's mid-Atlantic Media Creators. Look us up. Join the group. Uh, we're actually going to be doing a live stream upcoming with a videographer talking about the principles of the commercial photography business and how to structure your pricing. So, um, yeah, I, I, th- I feel like a lot of people... Uh, they start out, they're super creative, they have all this talent, but the business part can be the, the toughest thing, so we'll figure it out together. That is the end of this podcast, guys. Thank you guys so much for watching this far. Thank you to Carlo for coming on, and I want to do one more shout-out to the very first sponsor of this podcast as we've ever had, macromerch.com. Macromerch.com is a simple and easy way to order custom-printed t-shirts and products day or night at your convenience. Do you own a business? Do you have an event coming up? Are you involved in an organization or play a sport and need shirts? Look no further. Head over to macromerch.com to browse and select your desired apparel, brand, style, and color. Next, upload your logo, pick your sizes and quantities, and use code DEFY at checkout for 10% off your order and free shipping. That's DEFY at checkout for 10% off your order.